Welcome to Bloom Together, the podcast where we cultivate education leadership, innovation, and impact, one conversation at a time. Join us as we learn from visionary leaders, share inspiring stories, and uncover strategies that drive meaningful change in K-12 education. All right, greetings and good day, podcast listeners. This is Mike Caldwell, and you're listening to another episode of Bloom Together. And today we are in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, via Zoom. And joining me is Keith Orchard and Raylan Loken. Welcome, Keith and Raylan. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, sorry we couldn't work out that I was going to be in Coeur d'Alene. I had that on my plans, but uh, we'll see if we can make Zoom work. So I appreciate you guys uh your flexibility on this. I'm looking forward to adding just another conversation to our overall conversation that we've been having on mental health support in schools. You guys have been doing some really neat things up there to support students and staff, and I'm happy to to have this conversation and share it with the world. But before we get there, maybe Keith um, first, and then Ray Lynn, just introduce yourself and kind of what you do for the Coeur d'Alene School District. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Pre- appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. We're, uh, my name's Keith Orchard. I am a clinical social worker and uh, a sometimes I say a recovering middle school teacher. That was my very first job ever. So I, my dream was always to be in schools. And then um, turns out being in schools is really hard. So I quit, you know, <laughs> um, and became a social worker instead because that's easier, you know. Uh, so then I worked for Idaho Youth Ranch and Child Welfare, and in the last five years, I've been the mental health uh, specialist and now the mental health coordinator for the Coeur d'Alene School District. Well, people are going to quit. Going in the direction that you you went is is not a bad idea. At least you're still out there making a difference in schools. Yeah, well, I paved the way, so I let people people know that it's possible to do. You know, yeah. land on your feet. <laughs> Raylan. Um, I'm Raylan Loken, and I'm the mental health specialist for Coeur d'Alene Schools. Um, I also worked in child welfare for approximately eight years early in my um, social work career. I'm a master's level social worker, and um, I really like what I do. I enjoy um, working with humans, not just students, but all people um, from hard places and just helping other people understand um trauma and how it impacts the brain. And I'm really passionate about some of the subjects that we're going to be talking about today um, and really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Awesome. Yeah. Looking forward to the conversation. Um, Heard a little bit about what you guys are doing, had a pre-conversation, learned a little bit more. And and, uh, hopefully this conversation brings out some really good good stuff that you guys are doing that uh, maybe other schools can think about and how they um, take this approach and how they support mental health and in in their school. So let's talk about your school. What are you guys doing that is unique? Um, and what what would you like to talk about today? One thing that I, I wouldn't say unique to Idaho, but one thing that we really focus on in our district is um, trauma-informed practices and just understanding trauma and how it impacts the brain. Um, and what was really exciting was in February of 22, the legislator, um, decided to focus on ACEs or recognize that trauma impacts the body and brain and had referenced neuroscience and research and um, really just urging agencies and officers to better understand the impacts of trauma and the outcomes that it can have on our physical health um, as well as our mental health. Um, 
now and later in life. And so ACEs is something that we um, prioritize its teaching to all staff in our district. Um, and in Idaho specifically, we just talk about the, um, the impacts for Idahoans. So we look at the ACEs statistics for students um, and for our adult population. So one of the, um, well, I'll kind of just start with the history of ACEs, um, but it's a 10, 10 quiz or 10 question quiz that just talks about, have you experienced these 10 things in your lifetime um, between zero and 18? So they talk about um, abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. And if you experience any of those 10 things, um, your health outcomes are impacted. So the increase of cancer, the increase of heart disease, um, all increases by the number of ACEs that you have. And we are tied for fifth in the nation for children who have experienced four or more ACEs. And so our ACEs amongst our, our children is pretty high. Um, and so we, we want to combat that. What can we do as a school district to better understand ACEs, not just admire the problem, but really put out strategies um, to what we say would conquer ACEs. So um, resiliency factors, such as strengthening relationships, um, connecting with students, um, meeting their, their physical needs, as well as their emotional needs. So ACEs, I was going to ask you to elaborate when we talk about you know, trauma, what does that mean? But you kind of hit on that. And ACEs helps to really zero in on what types of trauma and at what levels, I guess, students have experienced. Is that accurate? ACEs yeah. is the tool to kind of bring that out? Yes. And there's um, three categories. So abuse, neglect, and then household dysfunction, which would include things like um, domestic violence occurring in the home, um, a parent using substances, um, a parent or caregiver who's incarcerated, any of those household dysfunction type of things are included in the ACEs um, questionnaire. Gotcha. But Mike, if I could interject just a little, the ACEs was a research study, started way back in the 80s and really finished in the 90s. And some people have used those 10 questions kind of like an assessment for a child. And we don't recommend that. It wasn't developed to be an assessment tool to say, hey, you have trauma and you don't. It was it was created as a research tool to say, what are the effects, short-term and really long-term effects of living in, uh, having a lot of stress, particularly young. And so like me personally, I have an A score of two, but my A score of two is really different than someone else's A score of two. Uh, because mine occurred at when I was eight with a parent's divorce. You know, and then my parents were drinking when I was a teenager. So I had two, but I was much older. And you can have an A score of two where your mother dies when you're one years old and your father has an addiction when you're two. And the impact on you is going to be very different. And so it doesn't really, those numbers help us understand how impactful trauma can be, but it doesn't really help us know what to do. Uh, about it yet. It just opened our eyes that yes, this matters and we need to pay attention. Is ACEs a tool that's used common in Idaho schools or schools across the country? There have been some schools that have used it and we decided very early that we didn't want to for the reasons I just said. Uh, we, we 
we explain what it is because understanding it's really powerful. Uh, but using it, we we would not suggest using it as an assessment tool and asking students or their parents what their ACE score is. I just don't think there's other better assessment tools if you really want to go down that road. I think the main goal of understanding ACEs from our perspective and for our district, it's to build compassion for teachers. It's really easy when you're in the moment with a child who um, is having a lot of behavioral concerns and it's happening every day and for long periods of a time um, to like look at that child and say things like that child is so manipulative or like, wow, this child is just naughty or the child is bad, you just have bad behavior. And if we can put on trauma-informed lens and view the child's behavior through ACEs, this child is behaving in this way because of this child's experience, um, helps us stay in the game when we're managing their behavior um, and trying to help them move towards more adaptive skills. Thank you for, for sharing that. Can you um, kind of talk a little bit about more about what your district does kind of maybe on a, at a high level, kind of thinking big picture for student and staff mental health, other either strategies or programs that you guys have in place um, and anything else that you kind of want to elaborate in terms of your big, big picture approach? Well, for us, the big picture, we, we knew we wanted to start with an understanding, just like Graylin said. Teachers need to understand why kids are doing these weird, contradictory, upsetting things. It doesn't really make sense. But then you learn about ACEs, that helps a little. And then we teach and have taught from the very beginning, really um, the foundational stuff about trauma uh, really comes from Dr. Bruce Perry. He has a model NMT, the neurosequential model of therapy. And Ray Lynn and I both learned that in child welfare. And when we started doing a book study and learning it, I remember the first time, like 12 years ago, and my jaw, jaw dropped and so did other people's. And we go, this makes so much sense. And it absolutely changes the way we see kids and families that we're working with who are really coming from a hard place. That we Then we understand the four Bs, as we call it how trauma and toxic stress affects the brain, biology, beliefs, and behaviors of people. And we go, that's why they're doing what they're doing. And so we took ACEs and Dr. Perry's work about how it affects the brain and the um, uh, the wiring of the brain and the uh, biology or the um, you know how the body's affected. And we teach that to folks again, really for, as to Ray Lynn's point, that teachers understand um, a little bit under more about why a kid might be doing what they're doing or why their parent might be, which brings just a little more calmness and a little more empathy to the situation. And it still doesn't fix the situation. But what it does is gives the um, caregiver a chance to see it in a way that they're maybe just a little less irritated by it and a little less upset. And then they show up to this and now they have a better chance of being successful with their interventions. Yeah, that makes sense. Can you elaborate a little bit on, say, NMT was the acronym? Yeah, the Neurosequential Model of Therapy. Well, that is a whole model of therapy by Bruce Perry, and we don't we don't teach that. I'm not trained in that, but we use the the fundamental principles about how trauma, particularly at an early age, the earlier the more impactful, that those stressful experiences rewire wire the brain. Don't even rewire because that's when the brain's being wired, and how that wiring. A, changes um, how a child will then 
um, move through the world and it changes their stress response system. Their stress response system is being uh, formed very early in life. And if it's under a lot of stress, it will form in a way that it's very sensitized. And a sensitized stress response system means a child will come to school and get a little bit stressed and they will their stress response system will overwhelm them. There'll be a whole cascade of chemicals and neurotransmitters that will flood their body. And now we have a six-year-old that can't control themselves in school. And that understanding and that belief system um, helps us to know how to intervene with that kiddo now uh, in a much better way than we did before. Yeah, so let's head in that direction. So your your work on the front end is awareness and then building empathy and understanding. Right, Len, you want to talk about TBRI then? Kind of it, uh, as much still about understanding and awareness and empathy still in the, the big picture. Yeah, so we train um, a an intervention called TBRI, it's Trust-Based Relational Intervention. And it is a trauma-informed intervention that is designed to, um, to help kids who've experienced trauma or adversity in their lives. And so really this um, TBRI model was created for children who were in the foster care system or um, who were adopted. And what, what we realized, not we, but uh, Texas Christian University, the creators of TBRI, realized was that this model works with anyone. Um, it works with all students um, and really could be a, a tier one intervention because what they do is they prioritize connection. And so when we feel more connected, we have the ability to learn. When, when we are connected, we feel safe. And when we have felt safety, then we can access the prefrontal cortex, um, the learning part of our brain. And that is how we can rewire. So when we talk about um, the wiring of the brain, um, really when kids are experiencing trauma, especially zero to five, um, they are building up the bottom portion of the brain, which is the fight or flight response system. And so when we prioritize connection over correction, we can rewire the brain so that it can access prefrontal cortex so we can teach new skills, um, resiliency, regulation skills, and with that, academics, which is the main goal of school systems, right? And so sometimes when we talk about trauma, and we'll get a response of, we're going to focus on academics. And absolutely we are. But to get there, we have to have felt safety and access to the learning part of our brain. So this is the intervention we use um, to train staff to respond to students who have a unique set of needs so that they can access the, the learning part of their brain. And it's, um, it's my favorite topic. TBRI is an incredible um, modality or an intervention, and really, it just takes it takes a look at um, empowering strategies, connection strategies, and then response strategies. Um, so when we are looking at behavior, sometimes we don't think about um, is the child just hungry, or do they need water? And there's a lot of research out there about how hunger and water. Um, or hydration impacts um, our regulation and kids who've experienced trauma are more sensitive to hunger and thirst. And so we teach our teachers about that. 
So instead of um, the old-fashioned way, when I was in um, elementary school, it was a lineup at the drinking fountain and you get three seconds each, and then we got to move on to academics. Now we're just more aware of hydration is a huge part um, of the classroom, and we need to model hydration and we need to encourage hydration as well as food. So when we have a behavior problem, we're looking at food and water, and then we're looking at the environment of the classroom. We're looking at connection so that we can have felt safety. And then we talk about correction strategies. So when the kids are fed and properly watered and when they are connected to their teacher, then we can correct the behavior in that order. Um, and that has been a really effective strategy, um, I think, in our district. Um, TBRI is um, kind of a hard training to get into, um, and we're really lucky to have um, more than 25 TBRI practitioners in our district that are um, at the district office level, as well as um, embedded into our schools. We have admin, counselors, um, and even teachers um, and a few paraprofessionals who are trained in TBRI so that they can make some system system changes every day in their schools as well. Do you have anything to add to that, Keith? I think TBRI is tough because it wasn't designed for schools. And I think we're pretty unique in using that as one of our main models in our in our approaches. What was uh, it designed I for, think, Keith? What's that? If it wasn't designed for schools, what was it designed for? Oh, it's designed for um, foster care and adoptive kids. And so there are other models for schools and uh, TBRI really is an attachment model therapy, really. It is really this idea that when kids are connected and attached, then they can learn, they can feel safe. That's the fundamental thing. When they feel safe, their stress response system quiets down and now their prefrontal cortex can engage. And now you can teach them the skills they need to learn. And that is true in the school too. Uh, it is a little bit harder because it was designed for one-on-one -on -one caregivers to use with their children or their foster children. And in schools, we don't have one-on-one. -on -one. So we've been working for five years to adapt it, organize it, and make it work in a school situation. And uh, fundamentally, the idea that uh, kids have attachment styles and so do teachers, and to understand that has been really powerful and helpful. And it is a challenge to adapt a model that is not was not specifically designed for schools. Yeah, so let me play back what I think I understand so far. So again, big picture approach, um, build awareness and understanding, build empathy at the at the teacher level, the people that work with the t students the closest, and then through your TBRI training and 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 structure, you're helping teachers understand you know how to build connectedness and and the things that kind of basic maslow's hierarchy you know focus areas to make sure that students feel safe secure connected and build that and then also for the teacher building i would understand it as kind of building a a sense of seeking to understand mentality so that when there is a issue that pops up what are those pieces that are that might be missing here that I need to maybe backfill. Is that kind of capture so far what we're talking about? Yeah, I would think so. Fundamentally, if we have calm and regulated teachers, they can do better. 
And so all of that foundation is like, okay, this kid is not out to get me. <laughs> this kid is struggling and this kid is stressed and had a stress response system that is sensitized and so on. So all these reframes just help the adults stay calmer. And now there's all the different things for now, what do we do about it? And yes, we feed kids and we make sure that they're well watered and well exercised because all of that helps. We think of sensory processing stuff in terms of their movement, in terms of the lighting of the school, in terms of their seating options. And uh, if you walk around our elementary schools, you will see that uh, the lighting has changed, the seating options have changed, the, the rooms have been reorganized based on these trainings, which is really nice. They have regulations corners where kids no longer get sent to the corner because you're in trouble, but they get sent to the corner to calm themselves and regulate. And so along with that comes a lot of proactive teaching. Uh, we teach flip your lid and zones of regulation and also and regulation railroad from sources of strength, all these different tools to let kids know this when you're feeling uptight, this is how you notice it and this is what you can do about it in school. And so you can go to the regulation corner and calm yourself for a few minutes and come back to learning tasks and other tools like that, right? So we're talking about proactive teaching um, for students as well. I think um, one thing that I'm really proud of is that we have taken the TBRI training materials and with permission from TCU, we rewrote it to better fit the education setting. And so one thing that we did was we looked at PBIS and we looked at um, ABA. So we, we looked at all of those different trainings that are already being used in a lot of our schools. Um, and we did a crosswalk of TBRI to really show that the two or the, the different trainings all really match well together. And so um, TBRI really is focusing on relationship, um, again, as well as proactive strategies. So how can we teach children regulation skills ahead of time so that when they're dysregulated, they have the skill to pull from. And we do that through play um, and connection so that they can access that skill in the moment when they're feeling dysregulated. And really, um, that isn't different from PBIS. So PBIS is more of that big picture framework. And so many of our schools are still utilizing that training. Um, because that's just pre-teaching behavior ahead of time and it's tier one system. Um, and it gives that expectation in the school setting. Here's our, um, our four expectations for this particular school. And then TBRI walks beautifully alongside PBIS um, because they're talking about what can you do specifically in the classroom to hold kids accountable to those agreed upon um, rules. Expectations, yeah. Yeah. And then in TBRA, we talk a lot about common language. And so if you have um, a PBIS system, the whole school, you're going to want all of the teachers to be utilizing the same responses and same language so that it doesn't matter what classroom you're in or if you're walking down the hall um, or if it's a para or a teacher or a principal that stops and talks to a kid if they are engaging in the same way it builds consistency and felt safety because you know how adults are going to respond to you in the building if i'm running in the hallway and that's not allowed then the language i'm going to use is 
hey, buddy, would you like to try that again? Let's have walking feet. And if everyone uses that same language, then we're all on the same page. Yeah. So would you see kind of TBIR as as just across the board a tier one then? I think you mentioned that, or is there levels of, of TBIR at tier two and tier three that, that look different? It depends on who you ask. Um, and how you were implementing TBRI. So when TBRI first came to the district, we partnered very closely with special education. Um, and so really when it was rolled out, it was being utilized as a tier three intervention with um, kids who had like the most restrictive classroom environment. And then lots of teachers started coming to these trainings. And so um, if you ask me, my belief is that it is a tier one intervention because all kids can benefit from being um, connected to yeah, and absolutely. and to be fed and watered, right? And just looking at um, our sensory system and how do we meet the needs of humans, not just tier three, but everyone. Um, and I would even say that TBRI can be utilized with adults. When we feel more connected as adults, we perform better in our jobs. When we're more connected to our spouse, we feel better in our marriage. Um, and so I would say that it's, it's tier one. Um, and I know that there's probably others out there that are like, that's definitely tier three, but. Yeah, it feels like tier one to me, but I'm not the expert that you are. So it's, it's helpful to kind of talk through that. Um, so would you say TBIR is kind of your core programming element across your school district? Um, and if not, what is and, and, and what else maybe do you have attached to it that complements TBIR? Well, I, we would say that uh, NSTBRI. And I they, keep saying it, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, that's all right. And they, um, we would say that for Raylan and I, certainly that's our core and our belief system. And it is the, it's the scaffolding that holds everything else. And once you have those core beliefs and understanding of attachment and, and trauma and all that, now you can intervene in lots of ways. And so then we include things uh, like PBIS. I think PBIS, when I first started five years ago, I, I didn't, I was not a fan of PBIS because, because I was ignorant and I didn't know all the things they did. And I just uh, was railing against the idea of the classical conditioning of, uh, of rewards and physical rewards in school, um, uh, school stores and things like that. I didn't like it. And, um, but now TBR, um, PBIS has come, has, is moving in their own understanding of trauma informed, becoming more trauma informed. And it feels like moving further away from like classroom schools and external reward systems to all the structures that are necessary for a school to do well. And they teach, like Raylan said, uh, the, uh, school-wide expectations being clear and taught that they do that perfectly, uh, the, the best, and it's really important. So now with this big understanding of TBRI and where kids come from, you can implement a lot of different models. And I know one of our toughest classrooms, this is our pullout therapeutic support classroom at the middle school. So these are the middle school kids that can't make it in the regular classroom. And, um, yes, they're in special ed, but uh, you know, it's really about behavior is why they can't do it. Not about some severe disability. And they have reorganized that classroom to be very 
very much like the ABA, the um, Applied Behavioral Analysis, by the way. And so uh, it, it's very classic conditioning um, level system. You have to earn your way up, which I, that's not what TBRI would say, but it, it involves, it creates a structure that those students need. Uh, and it is, it's really a tight structure for them. And within that, that structure, the, the instructors in that classroom are using TBRI principles of connection and meeting kids needs and felt safety. So they've really ratcheted up structure in that classroom and they have a lot of nurture, which uh, from TBRI and understanding of attachment, and uh, they're having great success with that combination. So TBRI doesn't do it all on its own. It is not like a, here's the model, do this. It is this belief and philosophy and scaffolding that helps underlie everything else that we do. And now we can use lots of different models or interventions to help teachers and kids. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So yeah. how do you how do you think about assessing impact and and whether or not your approach, specifically TBRI or whatever else, is making a difference? Yeah, well, Keith and I have talked a lot about that because that is um, one piece that we haven't been able to um, dive into. And so, in fact, we just had a, a phone call with um, TCU um, about collecting some data and what that would look like. Right now, it's just word of mouth. So after people come to our trainings, um, we get a lot of feedback about how well it's going um, and and specifically around um, teachers and staff understanding their own attachment and what they bring to the table um, in relationship with students. And so when they can better understand how they um, respond in relationship, um, it just gives them more awareness of, um, I don't know, Keith, what am I trying to say? It's just more awareness around um, what they bring to the table and in a relationship and how they're responding to their students or maybe how they're triggered because of their own past experiences. Um, and that has been incredibly helpful for them. So really just word of mouth. Um, and then of course we're, we're embedded in some schools. And so we get to see some outcomes in classrooms like um, the TSC at the, the middle school and the high school level. Um, both of those teachers um, of those classrooms are um, TBRI practitioners. So watching the transformation of those classrooms over the past few years um, has been incredible to watch. I think you mentioned TSC. Yes, that's our therapeutic support classroom. Okay, thank you. Yeah, sometimes we just throw out acronyms like everybody in the yeah, world yeah. knows knows what that is, but that, yeah. that's helpful. Yeah, I would imagine, you know, there's a lot of ways you could could measure the impact, but you know, one of them that you're I feel like you're kind of alluding to is that teacher, I guess, confidence and and comfort in 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 that they have some both awareness and also some strategies that can make a difference for the students that often create so much frustration and then lead to teacher burnout and those those types of things. But it seems like you're providing a lot of support to help teachers. Um, both understand better where their students are coming from and also how to mitigate and and respond to those common challenges that we see in classrooms. Yeah, and data collection on behavior can be really challenging 
Uh, that's another thing PBIS does really well. And particularly if you have some of their programs like Swift, which what defines, uh, what's the language they use? Um, uh, they got small behaviors and large behaviors. Do you know what they don't call them that tier? They don't call them tier one and two. Major and minor. There it is. They call them major and minor behaviors and they define that for teachers. That's really a useful thing for a school to do. And then they can track their major and minors. And I think that's super helpful. And that is not something that we've done in the Coeur d'Alene School District yet. Uh, and we're becoming a PLC district, which is the professional learning community. And within that, uh, data collection is a big part of it. And so we're moving in the right direction. Then the other challenge, of course, is that uh, in the state of Idaho and in our district, they've um, there's been pushback about uh, checking in or talking to students about their mental health or about their emotional state and um, doing surveys or collecting data that parents have said, we don't want you asking our kids about that. So from the beginning, we haven't been able to set up a system where we can collect data consistently about the performance of students other than very specific outward behaviors, their attendance, their discipline, uh, certain behaviors. Um, in terms of their internal state, are they learning and growing? Do they feel safer? It has been a really hard challenge to figure out how do we measure that when um, when we're not really allowed to ask kids some of those questions. So yeah. we're working on it. Yeah, I could see where that that challenge is. Um, and yeah. the outward behaviors can tell some of the story, but not complete completely. So that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So to we've got a few minutes here, and we hope to talk a little bit about how your district and maybe the things you're doing is supporting teachers and staff well being. I think what you've talked about with TBRI kind of leads to a little bit of that. Um, yeah. But maybe just open it up to anything you'd like to share that you're specifically doing to target the mental well-being of your faculty and staff. Well, when we were in child welfare, we realized the one of the best ways we could help a child is to help their parents. And when their parents were doing better uh, and getting their needs met, they were then therefore able to meet the needs of the child so much better. So we have to change the system in order to help the child sometimes. And we feel that way here. If we, if the teacher is doing better and the adults in the schools are calmer and regulated and have their needs met, then they're able to do uh, their very difficult job, which is to meet the needs of all those students. And so we started with lots of self-care and resilience lessons for teachers to help them uh, check in and to take care of themselves and to to learn more about how they can become more resilient. And then we got lucky and right before the pandemic, uh, we headed to Oklahoma City and got trained in this class called Making Sense of Your Worth. And I could not recommend it more. It was It's 16 hours long. I went to become an instructor for two and a half days. I was 50 years old. I had done a lot of work on myself and that was the greatest growing experience and professional development night had in a decade changed me personally helped me grow made me a better person a calmer person able to handle stress better and so then we took that training so right now everybody's writing that name down because you yeah making is the writer she's amazing she can make a lot of money on this and she kind of just gives it away and then cindy lee and her staff came up to Coeur d'Alene and trained 60 people in our area to be facilitators. And so luckily we have like, mm, how many do we have really? 15 facilitators about uh, who can tr who can teach making sense of your worth. 
And in those three years, we've probably trained 150 to 200 teachers and a few dozen kids in the in this class. And it's really about helping them uh, get over some past hurts and hangups. It's not therapy, but we call it being therapeutic. It certainly was for me. And um, it's the favorite thing. It's my favorite thing that I do in this job is teaching that class. Where does one go to get more information about how to take that class? Um, you would search the Halo Project. It's out of Oklahoma City. And Cindy has um, online classes available to become a facilitator, as well as um, a list of facilitators that are in um, potentially your area. So you, if you wanted to take the course, you could look at who's trained in your area or you could um, go to the Halo Project to be trained in Oklahoma to become a facilitator. Awesome. Good stuff. And Mike, I, I promoted this everywhere I went. For I was so happy with it. And then uh, the Nampa School District, they said, well, whoop, they brought Cindy Lee and trained, it, trained, I don't know, 30 or four, I don't know how many people in their area to be facilitators. And then Cindy and her team went to Pocatello and and trained a bunch of people there. And so we have people around the state of Idaho who um, are trained as facilitators. So if you keep looking it up, hopefully you can find one in your area. Yeah, very cool. Awesome. What about TBRI? Where would someone go to get more information about TBRI and um, maybe what, if they're thinking about how to add another layer of support for students, that might be something that they would be looking for. So same setup, you would visit um, Texas Christian University, um, the Karen Purvis um, Institute of Child Development, and they have practitioner trainings um, throughout the year. And so you could sign up to become a practitioner. Um, there's also scholarships available for that. So make sure to look into those. Um, and then if you wanted just to receive some training from a practitioner in your area, um, they also have um, a directory of practitioners and you could click on your state and see who um, is trained. Awesome. There's some great takeaways from this conversation that I know I've received and I know our listeners will as well. So as we wrap up, maybe just open it up to any closing comments or things that maybe we didn't get to that you'd like to mention. Well, for me, in these two these two roles, it started off, it was brand new. Um, the school district never had a mental health coordinator and a specialist. So they said, well, you know, create a program. And that was five years ago. And we were unique in Idaho. And I think there are a, maybe another school district or two that has a one person in this role. And within five years, we not only did all the stuff we talked about with TBRI and all the training, uh, but we also have built up a suicide prevention program uh, with various components of it for training for staff and for students. Um, also a crisis assistance team, which had been running, uh, but we're getting it, you know, we just kind of, I think, organizing it a little better, making it just a tiny bit more professional and and consistent. And uh, we have partnering with mental health therapists to have them in the school so that stu students, and we even have one partnership where um, it's brand new, we're piloting where a mental health therapist will come into the school to provide therapy for teachers during their prep period, right? Another way to take care of teachers uh, in the best way that we can. And we've partnered with churches. We have 15 of our 17 schools have a church that is attached and connected to them uh, to uh, meet some of their needs and to um, you know just come in with some stuff and help support that school. 
and we developed an entire facility animal program uh, thanks to Erin Duncan and all of her work. And uh, so these are some things that we're really proud of. And so I'd be thrilled if anyone wanted to reach out and talk to you, go, hey, how do we do that? How do we do that a little bit better? Can I learn from you? And I'd like to learn from them. So anyone can reach out at any time to learn more about the stuff that we've been building for five years. Yeah, absolutely. If I was still running a school, I would be scheduling a field trip to Coeur to go learn more because you guys are doing some really cool <laughs> stuff. Awesome. That's nice to say. Thanks. Yeah. Hey, Lynn, anything you would add? I think the only thing that I want to add is that uh, the reason why we're able to focus on trauma and attachment um, is because we have support from leadership and we have support from our community um, and we have incredible admin um, in our district that are willing to say, yes, let's talk about our feelings um, and and let's make sure that we're taking care of our staff. Um, and so we couldn't do it without all of the support that we have. Um, when we first entered the district approximately, I don't know, six, seven years ago, I think is when we first came to the school district to do a TBRI training, um, there was a tiny bit of pushback um, that we were focusing too much on on trauma and not really holding kids accountable. Um, and that mentality has shifted, um, which is really beautiful. Like we are able to to look at trauma, we're able to talk about feelings um, and still hold kids accountable at the same time, structure and nurture and balancing those things. Um, and we couldn't do that without the support of special education, um, leadership, everyone. We have a really cool district. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, and can I add to that? I just, yeah, I would like to say thank our leadership has been um, supportive from the very beginning. And they say, even when we're in financial trouble and things, they go, look, we can't lose you. Mental health matters and we still want it. And our board agrees and I couldn't thank them enough. And they consistently vote to support it. And then our community passed the levy and the levy pays for all those things the state doesn't pay for, which includes SROs and sports and mental health. And so without the community saying, yeah, we want those things for our schools and our kids, uh, we wouldn't have them. We'd go down to just bare bones schools. And so the Coeur d'Alene School District or our community has said yes to that numerous times. And um, I'm just very grateful to them for that. Yeah, well said and and kudos to not only you guys, but to, like you said, your leadership and community com coming together and making this a priority. Because as mentioned earlier, I think Raylan was saying is you have to have this in order to really also get to the academics, which is why we're, we're there. But if you don't take care of these things, you'll never get to really making a profound difference in the academics. So kudos to you guys on, on the work that you're doing. And thank you for being a guest today on Bloom Together. I appreciate your insight adding to this overall conversation to how we support mental health in schools. So thank you to Keith and Ray Lynn, and thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us to explore education, leadership, innovation, and impact here on Bloom Together. We encourage you to continue these dialogues in your communities, classrooms, and organizations. Be sure to visit bloom.org slash together, where you can discover more episodes or click join the conversation if you'd like to be a guest. Until next time, keep learning, keep blooming, and keep making an impact one conversation at a time.